Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tonight, I will be reading... Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter One We were in class when the headmaster came in, followed by a new fellow, 
not wearing the school uniform, and a school servant carrying a large desk. Those who had been asleep woke up, and everyone rose as if just surprised at his work. The headmaster made a sign to us to sit down. Then, turning to the classmaster, he said to him in a low voice, Monsieur Roger, here's a pupil whom I recommend to your care. He'll be in the second. If his work and conduct are satisfactory, he will go into one of the upper classes, as becomes his age. The new fellow, standing in the corner behind the door so that he could hardly be seen, was a country lad of about fifteen and taller than any of us. His hair was cut square on his forehead like a village chorister's. He looked reliable, but very ill at ease. Although he was not broad-shouldered, his short school jacket of green cloth with black buttons must have been tight around the armholes and showed, at the opening of the cuffs, red wrists accustomed to being bare. His legs in blue stockings looked out from beneath yellow trousers drawn tight by braces. He wore stout, ill-cleaned, hobnailed boots. We began repeating the lesson. He listened with all his ears, as attentive as if at a sermon, not daring even to cross his legs or lean on his elbow. And when at two o'clock the bell rang, the master was obliged to tell him to fall into line with the rest of us. When we came out to work, we were in the habit of throwing our caps on the ground so as to have our hands more free. We used from the front door to toss them under the form so that they hit against the wall and made a lot of dust. It was the thing. But whether he had not noticed the trick or did not dare to attempt it, the new fellow was still holding his cap on his knees even after prayers were over. It was one of those headgears of composite order in which we can find traces of the bearskin, shako, sealskin cap, and cotton night cap, one of those poor things, in fine, whose dumb ugliness has depths of expression like an imbecile's face. Oval, stiffened with whalebone, it began with three round knobs, then came in succession lozenges of velvet and rabbit skin, separated by a red band. After that, a sort of bag that ended in a cardboard polygon covered with complicated braiding from which hung, at the end of a long, thin cord, small, twisted gold threads in the manner of a tassel. The cap was new, its peak shone. Rise, said the master. He stood up, his cap fell. The whole class began to laugh. He stooped to pick it up. A neighbour knocked it down again with his elbow. He picked it up once more. Get rid of your helmet, said the master, who was a bit of a wag. There was a burst of laughter from the boys, which so thoroughly put the poor lad out of countenance that he did not know whether to keep his cap in his hand, leave it on the ground, or put it on his head. He sat down again and placed it on his knee. Rise, repeated the master, and tell me your name. The new boy articulated in a stammering voice an unintelligible name. Again. The same sputtering of syllables was heard drowned by the tittering of the class. Louder, cried the master, louder. The new fellow then took a supreme resolution, opened an inordinately large mouth, and shouted at the top of his voice as if calling someone in the word, Shabari. A hubbub broke out, 
rose in crescendo with bursts of shrill voices. They yelled, barked, stamped, repeated, Chabouvry, Chabouvry, then died away into single notes, growing quieter only with great difficulty, and now and again suddenly recommencing along the line of a form, whence rose here and there, like a damp cracker going off, a stifled laugh. However, amid a rain of impositions, order was gradually re-established in the class, and the master having succeeded in catching the name of Charles Bovary, having had it dictated to him, spelt out and re-read, and once ordered the poor devil to go and sit down on the punishment form at the foot of the master's desk. He got up, but before going, hesitated. What are you looking for? asked the master. My cap, timidly said the new fellow, casting troubled looks around him. Five hundred lines for all the class, shouted in a furious voice, stopped like the crow's ego, a fresh outburst. Silence, continued the master indignantly, wiping his brow with his handkerchief, which he had just taken from his cap. As to you, new boy, you will conjugate ridiculous sum twenty times. Then, in a gentler tone, come, you'll find your cap again. It hasn't been stolen. Quiet was restored. Heads bent over desks, and the new fellow remained for two hours in an exemplary attitude, although from time to time some paper pellet flipped from the tip of a pen came bang into his face. But he wiped his face with one hand and continued motionless, his eyes lowered. In the evening, at preparation, he pulled out his pens from his desk, arranged his small belongings, and carefully ruled his paper. We saw him working conscientiously, looking up every word in the dictionary and taking the greatest pains. Thanks, no doubt, to the willingness he showed, he had not to go down to the class below. But though he knew his rules passably, he had little finish in composition. It was the curé of his village who had taught him his first Latin. His parents, from motives of economy, having sent him to school as late as possible. His father, Monsieur Charles Denis Bartholomé Bouvery, retired assistant surgeon major, compromised about 1812 in certain conscription scandals, and forced at this time to leave the service, had taken advantage of his fine figure to get hold of a dowry of 60,000 francs that offered in the person of a hosier's daughter who had fallen in love with his good looks, a fine man, a great talker, making his spurs ring as he walked, wearing whiskers that ran into his moustache, his fingers always garnished with rings and dressed in loud colours. He had the dash of a military man with the easy go of a commercial traveller. Once married, he lived for three or four years on his wife's fortune, dining well, rising late, smoking long porcelain pipes, not coming in at night till after the theatre, and haunting cafes. The father-in-law died, leaving little. He was indignant at this, went in for the business, lost some money in it, then retired to the country where he thought he would make some money. But as he knew no more about farming than calico, as he rode his horses instead of sending them to plough, drank his cider in bottle instead of selling it in cask, ate the finest poultry in his farmyard and greased his hunting boots with the fat of his pigs, he was not long in finding out that he would do better to give up all speculation. For 200 francs a year, he managed to live on the border of the provinces of 
Coe and Picardy, in a kind of half-farm, half-private house. And here, soured, eaten up with regrets, cursing his luck, jealous of everyone, he shut himself up at the age of 45, sick of men, he said, and determined to live in peace. His wife had adored him once upon a time. She had bored him with a thousand servilities that had only estranged him the more. Lively once, expansive and affectionate, and growing older she had become, after the fashion of wine that exposed to air turns to vinegar, ill-tempered, grumbling, irritable. She had suffered so much without complaint at first, until she had seen him going after all the village drabs, and until a score of bad houses sent him back to her at night, weary, stinking drunk. Then her pride revolted. After that she was silent, burying her anger in a dumb stoicism that she maintained till her death. She was constantly going about looking after business matters. She called on the lawyers, the president, remembered when bills fell due, got them renewed, and at home, ironed, sewed, washed, looked after the workmen, paid the accounts. While he, troubling himself about nothing, eternally besotted in sleepy sulkiness, whence he only roused himself to say disagreeable things to her, sat smoking by the fire and spitting into the cinders. When she had a child, it had to be sent out to nurse. When he came home, the lad was spoilt as if he were a prince. His mother stuffed him with jam. His father let him run about barefoot, and playing the philosopher even said he might as well go about quite naked, like the young of animals. As opposed to the maternal ideas, he had a certain virile idea of childhood, on which he sought to mould his son, wishing him to be brought up heartily like a Spartan, to give him a strong constitution. He sent him to bed without any fire, taught him to drink off large draughts of rum, and to jeer at religious processions. But peaceable by nature, the lad answered only poorly to his notions. His mother always kept him near her. She cut out cardboard for him, told him tales, entertained him with endless monologues full of melancholy gaiety and charming nonsense. In her life's isolation, she centered on the child's head all her shattered, broken little vanities. She dreamed of high station. She already saw him, tall, handsome, clever, settled as an engineer or in the law. She taught him to read, and even on an old piano, she had taught him two or three little songs. But to all this, Monsieur Bovary, caring little for letters, said, it was not worthwhile. Would they ever have the means to send him to a public school, to buy him a practice, or start him in business? Besides, with cheek, a man always gets on in the world. Madame Bovary bit her lips and the child knocked about the village. He went after the labourers, drove away with clods of earth the ravens that were flying about. He ate blackberries along the hedges, minded the geese with a long switch, went haymaking during harvest, ran about in the woods, played hopscotch under the church porch on rainy days, and at great fets begged the beadle to let him toll the bells that he might hang all his weight on the long rope and feel himself borne upward by it in its swing. Meanwhile, he grew like an oak. He was strong on hand, fresh of colour. When he was twelve years old, his mother had her own way. He began lessons. The curé took him in hand, but the lessons were so short and irregular that they could not be of much use. They were given at spare moments in the sacristy, standing up hurriedly between a baptism and a burial, or else the curé 
if he had not to go out, sent for his pupil after the Angelus. He went up to his room and settled down. The flies and moths fluttered around the candle. It was close. The child fell asleep. And the good man, beginning to doze with his hands on his stomach, was soon snoring with his mouth wide open. On other occasions, when Monsieur le Curé, on his way back after administering the viaticum to some sick person in the neighborhood, caught sight of Charles playing about the fields, he called him, lectured him for a quarter of an hour, and took advantage of the occasion to make him conjugate his verb at the foot of a tree. The rain interrupted them, or an acquaintance passed. All the same, he was always pleased with him, and even said the young man had a very good memory. Charles could not go on like this. Madame Bovary took strong steps. Ashamed, or rather tired out, Monsieur Bovary gave in without a struggle, and they waited one year longer so that the lad should take his first communion. Six months more passed, and the year after Charles was finally sent to school at Rouen, where his father took him towards the end of October at the same time of the Saint-Romain fair. It would now be impossible for any of us to remember anything about him. He was a youth of even temperament, who played in playtime, worked in school hours, was attentive in class, slept well in the dormitory, and ate well in the refectory. He had in loco parentis a wholesale ironmonger in the Rue Jeanterie, who took him out once a month on Sundays after his shop was shut, sent him for a walk on the quay to look at the boats, and then brought him back to college at seven o'clock before supper. Every Thursday evening, he wrote a long letter to his mother with red ink and three wafers. Then he went over his history notebooks or read an old volume of Anarchasis that was knocking about the study. When he went for walks, he talked to the servant who, like himself, came from the country. By dint of hard work, he kept always about the middle of the class Once even, he got a certificate in natural history. But at the end of his third year, his parents withdrew him from the school to make him study medicine, convinced that he could even take his degree by himself. His mother chose a room for him on the fourth floor of a dyer's she knew, overlooking the Eau de Berbeck. She made arrangements for his board, got him furniture, table, and two chairs, sent home for an old cherry tree bedstead, and bought besides a small cast-iron stove with a supply of wood that was to warm the poor child. Then, at the end of a week, she departed, after a thousand injunctions to be good now that he was going to be left to himself. The syllabus that he read on the notice board stunned him. Lectures on anatomy, lectures on pathology, lectures on physiology, lectures on pharmacy, lectures on botany and clinical medicine, and therapeutics without counting hygiene and materia medica, all names of those etymologies he was ignorant, and that were to him as so many doors to sanctuaries filled with magnificent darkness. He understood nothing of it all. It was all very well to listen. He did not follow. Still, he worked. He had bound no books. He attended all the courses, never missed a single lecture. He did his little daily task like a mill horse, who goes round and round with his eyes bandaged, not knowing what work he is doing. To spare him expense, his mother sent him every week by the carrier a piece of veal baked in the oven, with which he lunched when he came back from the hospital, while he sat kicking his feet against the wall. After this, he had to run off to lectures, the operation room, to the hospital, 
and returned to his home at the other end of the town. In the evening, after the poor dinner of his landlord, he went back to his room and set to work again in his wet clothes, which smoked as he sat in front of the hot stove. On the fine summer evenings, at the time when the closed streets were empty, when the servants were playing shuttlecock at the doors, he opened his window and leaned out. The river that makes of this quarter of Rouen a wretched little Venice flowed beneath him, between the bridges and the railings, yellow, violet or blue. Working men, kneeling on the banks, washed their bare arms in the water. On poles projecting from the attics, skeins of cotton were drying in the air. Opposite, beyond the roots, spread the pure heaven with the red setting sun. How pleasant it must be at home, how fresh under the breech tree. And he expanded his nostrils to breathe in the sweet odours of the country, which did not reach him. He grew thin, his figure became taller, his face took a saddened look that made it nearly interesting. Naturally, through indifference, he abandoned all the resolutions he had made. Once he missed a lecture, the next day, all the lectures, and, enjoying his idleness little by little, he gave up work altogether. He got into the habit of going to the public house and had a passion for dominoes. To shut himself up every evening in the dirty public room, to push about on marble tables the small sheep bones with black dots, seemed to him a fine proof of his freedom, which raised him in his own esteem. It was beginning to see life, the sweetness of stolen pleasures, and when he entered, he put his hand on the door handle with a joy almost sensual. Then many things hidden within him came out. He learned couplets by heart and sang them to his boon companions, became enthusiastic about barrage, and learned how to make punch. Thanks to these preparatory labours, he failed completely in his examination for an ordinary degree. He was expected home the same night to celebrate his success. He started on foot, stopped at the beginning of the village, sent for his mother, and told her all. She excused him, threw the blame of his failure on the injustice of the examiners, encouraged him a little, and took upon herself to set matters straight. It was only five years later that Monsieur Bovary knew the truth. It was old then, and he accepted it. Moreover, he could not believe that a man born of him could be a fool. So Charles set to work again and crammed for his examination, ceaselessly learning all the old questions by heart. He passed pretty well. What happy day for his mother. They gave a grand dinner. Where should he go to practice? To toast, where there was only one old doctor. For a long time, Madame Bovary had been on the lookout for his death and the old fellow had barely been packed off when Charles was installed, opposite his place as his successor. But it was not everything to have brought up a son, to have had him taught medicine, and discovered toast. Where he could practice it, he must have a wife. She found him one, the widow of a bailiff at Dieppe, who was forty-five and had an income of twelve hundred francs. Though she was ugly, her face with as many pimples as the spring has buds, Madame de Bouc had no lack of suitors. To attain her ends, Madame Bovary had to oust them all, and she even succeeded in very cleverly baffling the intrigues of a port butcher, backed up by the priests. Charles had seen in marriage the advent of an easier life, thinking he would be more free to do as he liked with himself and his money. But his wife was master. He had to say this and not say that in company, 
to fast every Friday, dress as she liked, harass at her bidding those patients who did not pay. She opened his letter, watched his comings and goings, and listened at the partition wall when women came in to consult him in his surgery. She must have her chocolate every morning, attentions without end. She constantly complained of her nerves, her chest, her liver. The noise of footsteps made her ill. When people left her, solitude became odious to her. If they came back, it was doubtless to see her die. When Charles returned in the evening, she stretched forth two long, thin arms from beneath the sheets, put them around his neck, and having made him sit down on the edge of the bed, began to talk to him of her troubles. He was neglecting her. He loved another. She had been warned she would be unhappy, and she ended by asking him for a dose of medicine and a little more love. Chapter 2 One night, towards eleven o'clock, they are awakened by the noise of a horse pulling up outside their door. The servant opened the garret window and parlayed for some time with a man in the street below. He came for the doctor, had a letter for him. Natazie came downstairs shivering and undid the bars and bolts, one after the other. The man left his horse, and following the servant suddenly came in behind her. He pulled out from his wool cap with grey top knots, a letter wrapped up in a rag, and presented it gingerly to Charles, who rested on his elbow on the pillow to read it. Natazie, standing near the bed, held the light. Madame in modesty had turned to the wall and showed only her back. This letter, sealed with a small seal in blue wax, begged Monsieur Bovary to come immediately to the farm of the Berteaux to set a broken leg. Now from Toast to the Berteaux was a good eighteen miles across country by way of Longueville and Saint-Victor. It was a dark night. Madame Bovary Jr. was afraid of accidents for her husband, so it was decided the stable boy should go on first. Charles would start three hours later when the moon rose. A boy was to be sent to meet him and show him the way to the farm and open the gates for him. Towards four o'clock in the morning, Charles, well wrapped up in his cloak, set out for the Berteau. Still sleepy from the warmth of his bed, he let himself be lulled by the quiet trot of his horse. When it stopped of its own accord in front of those holes surrounded with thorns that are dug on the margin of furrows, Charles awoke with a start, suddenly remembered the broken leg and tried to call to mind all the fractures he knew. The rain had stopped, day was breaking, and on the branches of the lifeless trees, birds roosted motionless, their little feathers bristling in the cold morning wind. The flat country stretched as far as I could see, and the tufts of trees round the farms at long intervals seemed like dark violet stains on the cast grey surface that on the horizon faded into the gloom of the sky. Charles from time to time opened his eyes. His mind grew weary and sleep coming upon him. He soon fell into a doze wherein, his recent sensations blending with memories, he became conscious of a double self, at once student and married man, lying in his bed as but now and crossing the operation theatre as of old. The warm smell of pulses mingled in his brain with the fresh odour of dew. He heard the iron rings rattling along the curtain rods of the bed and saw his wife sleeping. As he passed Vazonville, he came upon a boy sitting on the grass at the edge of a ditch. Are you the doctor? asked the child. 
and on Charles's answer he took his wooden shoes in his hand and ran on in front of him. The general practitioner, riding along, gathered from his guide's talk that Monsieur Rouault must be one of the well-to-do farmers. He had broken his leg the evening before on his way home from a twelfth-night feast at a neighbor's. His wife had been dead for two years. There was with him only his daughter, who helped him to keep house. The ruts were becoming deeper. They were approaching the Berteau. The little lad, slipping through a hole in the hedge, disappeared. Then he came back to the end of a courtyard to open the gate. The horse slipped on the wet grass. Charles had to stoop to pass under the branches. The watchdogs in their kennels barked, dragging at their chains. As he entered the Berteau, the horse took fright and stumbled. It was a substantial-looking farm. In the stables, over the top of the open doors, he could see great cart horses quietly feeding from new racks. Right along the outbuildings extended a large dunghill from which manure liquid oozed, while amidst fowls and turkeys, five or six peacocks, a luxury in Shoshua farmyards, were foraging on the top of it. The sheepfold was long, the barn high, with walls smooth as your hand. Under the cart shed were two large carts and four ploughs, with their whips, shafts and harnesses complete, whose fleeces of blue wool were getting soiled by the fine dust that fell from the granaries. The courtyard sloped upwards, planted with trees set out symmetrically, and the chattering noise of a flock of geese was heard near the pond. A young woman in a blue dress with three flounces came to the threshold of the door to receive Monsieur Bovary, whom she led to the kitchen where a large fire was blazing. The servant's breakfast was boiling beside it in small pots of all sizes. Some damp clothes were drying inside the chimney corner. The shovel, tongs, and the nozzle of the bellows, all of colossal size, shone like polished steel, while along the walls hung many pots and pans in which the clear flame of the hearth, mingling with the first rays of the sun coming in through the window, was mirrored fitfully. Charles went up to the first floor to see the patient. He found him in his bed, sweating under his bedclothes, having thrown his cotton nightcap right away from him. He was a fat little man of fifty, with white skin and blue eyes. The forepart of his head bald, and he wore earrings. By his side on a chair stood a large decanter of brandy, whence he poured himself a little from time to time to keep up his spirits. But as soon as he caught sight of the doctor, his elation subsided, and instead of swearing, as he had been doing for the last twelve hours, began to groan freely. The fracture was a simple one, without any kind of complication. Charles could not have hoped for an easier case. Then calling to mind the devices of his masters at the bedsides of patients, he comforted the sufferer with all sorts of kindly remarks, those caresses of the surgeon that are like the oil they put on scalpels. In order to make some splints, a bundle of laths was brought up from the cart house. Charles selected one, cut it into two pieces and planed it with a fragment of window pane, while the servant tore up sheets to make bandages, and Mademoiselle Emma tried to sew some pads. As she was a long time before she found her workcase, her father grew impatient. She did not answer, but as she sewed, she pricked her fingers, which she then put to her mouth to suck them. Charles was surprised at the whiteness of her nails. They were shiny, delicate at the tips, more polished than the ivory of Dieppe, and almond-shaped. 
yet her hand was not beautiful, and a little hard at the knuckles besides. It was too long, with no soft inflections in the outlines. Her real beauty was in her eyes. Although brown, they seemed black because of the lashes, and her look came at you frankly with a candid boldness. The bandaging over, the doctor was invited by Monsieur Rouault himself to pick a bit before he left. Charles went down into the room on the ground floor. Knives and forks and silver goblets were laid out for two on a little table at the foot of a huge bed that had a canopy of printed cotton with figures representing Turks. There was an odour of iris root and damp sheets that escaped from a large oak chest opposite the window. On the floor in corners were sacks of flour stuck upright in rows. These were the overflow from the neighbouring granary to which three stone steps led. By way of decoration for the apartment, hanging to a nail in the middle of the wall, whose green paint scaled off from the effects of the saltpetre, was a crayon head of Minerva in gold frame. Underneath was written in Gothic letters, To Dare Papa. First they spoke of the patient, then of the weather, of the great cold, of the wolves that infested the fields at night. Mademoiselle Rouault did not at all like the country, especially now that she had to look after the farm almost alone. As the room was chilly, she shivered as she ate. This showed something of her full lips, that she had a habit of biting when silent. Her neck stood out from a white, turned-down collar. Her hair, whose two black folds seemed each of a single piece, so smooth were they, was parted in the middle by a delicate line that curved slightly with the curve of the head, and, just showing the tip of the ear, it was joined behind in a thick chignon, with a wavy movement at the temples that the country doctor saw now for the first time in his life. The upper part of her cheek was rose-coloured. She had, like a man, thrust in between two buttons of her bodice a tortoise-shell eyeglass. When Charles, after bidding farewell to old Rouault, returned to the room before leaving, he found her standing, her forehead against the window, looking into the garden, where the bean props had been knocked down by the wind. She turned round. Are you looking for anything? she asked. My whip, if you please, he answered. He began rummaging on the bed, behind the doors, under the chairs. It had fallen to the floor, between the sacks and the wall. Mademoiselle Emma saw it and bent over the flower sacks. Charles, out of politeness, made a dash also, and as he stretched out his arm, at the same moment felt his breast brush against the back of the young girl, bending beneath him. She drew herself up, scarlet, and looked at him over her shoulder as she handed him his whip. Instead of returning to the Berteau in three days as he had promised, he went back the very next day, then regularly twice a week, without counting the visits he paid now and then as if by accident. Everything, moreover, went well. The patient progressed favorably, and when, at the end of forty-six days, old Rouault was seen trying to walk alone in his den, Monsieur Bovary began to be looked upon as a man of great capacity. Old Rouault said he could not have been cured better by the first doctor of Yves Tau, or even Rouen. As to Charles, he did not stop to ask himself why it was a pleasure to him to go to the Berteau. Had he done so, he would, no doubt, have attributed his zeal to the importance of the case, or perhaps to the money he hoped to make by it. Was it for this, however, 
that his visits to the farm formed a delightful exception to the meagre occupations of his life. On these days he rose early, set off at a gallop, urging on his horse, then got down to wipe his boots in the grass and put on black gloves before entering. He liked going to the courtyard and noticing the gate turn against his shoulder, the cock crow on the wall, the lads run to meet him. He liked the granary in the stables. He liked old Rouault, who pressed his hand and called him his saviour. He liked the small wooden shoes of Mademoiselle Emma on the scoured flags of the kitchen. Her high heels made her a little taller, and when she walked in front of him, the wooden soles springing up quickly struck with a sharp sound against the leather of her boots. She always accompanied him to the first step of the stairs. When his horse had not yet been brought round, she stayed there. They had said goodbye. There was no more talking. The open air wrapped her around, playing with the soft down on the back of her neck, or blew to and fro on her hips, the apron strings that fluttered like streamers. Once, during a thaw, the bark of the trees in the yard was oozing. The snow on the roofs of the outbuildings was melting. She stood on the threshold and went to fetch her sunshade and opened it. The sunshade of silk, of the colour of pigeon's breaths, through which the sun shone, lighted up with shifting hues the skin of her face. She smiled under the tender warmth, and drops of water could be heard falling one by one on the stretched silk. During the first period of Charles's visits to the Bertaux, Madame Bovary Jr. never failed to inquire after the invalid, and she had even chosen in the book that she kept on a system of double entry a clean blank page for Monsieur Rouault. But when she heard he had a daughter, she began to make inquiries and understood that Mademoiselle Rouault, brought up at the Ursuline convent, had received what is called a good education, and so knew dancing, geography, drawing, how to embroider and play the piano. That was the last straw. So it is for this, she said to herself, that his face beams when he goes to see her, and that he puts on his new waistcoat at the risk of spoiling it with the rain. Ah, that woman, that woman. And she detested her instinctively. At first she solaced herself by allusions that Charles did not understand, then by casual observations that he let pass for fear of a storm, finally by open apostrophes to which he knew not how to answer. Why did he go back to the Berton now that Monsieur Rouault was cured, and these folks hadn't paid yet? Ah, it was because a young lady was there, someone who knew how to talk, how to embroider, to be witty. That was what he cared about. He wanted town misses. And she went on. The daughter of old Rouault, a town miss. Get out. Their grandfather was a shepherd, and they have a cousin who was almost had up at the Assizes for a nasty blow and a quarrel. It is not worthwhile making such a fuss or showing herself at church on Sundays in a silk gown like a countess. Besides, the poor old chap, if it hadn't been for the colza last year, would have had much ado to pay up his arrears. For very weariness, Charles left off going to the Berto. Eloise made him swear, his hand on the prayer book, that he would go there no more after much sobbing and many kisses and a great outburst of love. He obeyed then, but the strength of his desire protested against the servility of his conduct, and he thought, with a kind of naive hypocrisy, that his interdict to see her gave him a sort of right to love her. 
And then the widow was thin. She had long teeth, wore in all weathers a little black shawl, the edge of which hung down between her shoulder blades. Her bony figure was sheathed in her clothes as if they were a scabbard. They were too short and displayed her ankles with the laces of her large boots crossed over grey stockings. Charles's mother came to see them from time to time. But after a few days, the daughter-in-law seemed to put her own edge on her, and then, like two knives, they scarified him with their reflections and observations. It was wrong of him to eat so much. Why did he always offer a glass of something to everyone who came? What obstinacy not to wear flannels? In the spring, it came about that a notary at Ingonville, the holder of the widow de Bouc's property, one fine day went off, taking with him all the money in his office. Eloise, it is true, still possessed, besides a share in a boat valued at 6,000 francs, her house in the Rue Saint-Francois, and yet, with all this fortune that had been so trumpeted abroad, nothing, excepting perhaps a little furniture and a few clothes, had appeared in the household. The matter had to be gone into. The house at Dieppe was found to be eaten up with mortgages to its foundations. What she had placed with the notary, God only knew, and her share in the boat did not exceed 1,000 crowns. She had lied, the good lady. In his exasperation, Monsieur Bovary the elder, smashing a chair on the flags, accused his wife of having caused misfortune to the son by harnessing him to such a heridian, whose harness wasn't worth her hide. They came to toast. Explanations followed. There were scenes. Heloise in tears, throwing her arms around her husband, implored him to defend her from his parents. Charles tried to speak up for her. They grew angry and left the house. But the blow had struck home. A week after, as she was hanging up some washing in her yard, she began spitting up blood. And the next day, while Charles had his back turned to her, drawing the window curtain, she said, Oh God, gave a sigh and fainted. She was dead. What a surprise. When all was over at the cemetery, Charles went home. He found no one downstairs. He went up to the first floor to their room, saw her dress still hanging at the foot of the alcove. Then, leaning against the writing table, he stayed until the evening, buried in a sorrowful reverie. She had loved him after all. <laughs>